This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What would you do if you came into possession of documents that seemingly implicated the American government in a decades-long cover-up? Would you release this news to the public? It's what American democratic norms demand. But what if these documents also led one down a darker path, into a world full of conspiracies? Or more particularly, into one macro-conspiracy that potentially rewrites the history of 20th century America. This is the question that faced ufologists, researchers of the UFO phenomenon in the 1980s. For years, true believers begged the public to believe in the existence of aliens and the government's efforts to hide this existence. Then a few of these staunch advocates, Jamie Chanderay and William Moore, found themselves in possession of a new holy grail, the Majestic Twelve Leaks, which pointed to President Harry Truman's establishment of a top-secret agency called Majestic Twelve, dedicated to the investigation and cover-up of extraterrestrial activity on Earth. And finally, the true believers had their proof. But was it real? In life, there is so much we don't know. But in this podcast, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every week, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm your host, Claire. This is our second episode investigating the mystery of the Majestic 12, a supposedly top-secret government agency dedicated to the study and cover-up of the United States' interaction with alien life forms following the Roswell incident. Last week, we took a deeper look into how UFO mania overtook America in the second half of the 20th century. We also examined the contents of the leaked documents and the various mysteries attached to them, including the strange death of supposed MJ-12 founding member, Defense Secretary James Forrestal. This week, we turn our focus solely on uncovering the truth behind this mystery, or as much truth as we can. We'll track the reactions of the UFO community and the government following the release of the MJ-12 documents in the book Above Top Secret, and we'll examine the legitimacy of the documents. Finally, we'll attempt to understand why the story of UFOs in America has been so divisive and mysterious. If you like the show, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast directory. A new episode comes out every Thursday. While you're there, we'd greatly appreciate a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, on Twitter at Parcast Network, and at parcast.com. For decades, 
The U.S. government refused to confirm or deny investigations into UFO and alien sightings. Slowly, throughout the 1970s and 80s, the public learned of operations like Project Blue Book, run by the U.S. Air Force, that had indeed looked into such claims. But no true ufologist was satisfied by these findings, and the secretive nature of these government operations only spread a sense of unease and distrust. It could be said that the conspiracy obsession of 20th century America was created by this lack of effective communication between leaders and the people. World War II and the atom bomb put us on edge, and UFOs pushed us over that paranoid cliff. Cultural critics and UFO skeptics Joe Nickel and James McGehe coined a term for this neurotic obsession, the Roswellian syndrome. Named after the infamous New Mexico incident from the 1940s, the birthplace of all major extraterrestrial conspiracy theories and mysteries. Nickel and McGehe believed there is a five-stage process of how the mysteries surrounding government alien cover-ups came to be. Stages one and two of the Roswellian syndrome are incident and debunking. In Roswell's case, this was the incident when the suspicious object crashed and then the government ruled it as a crashed weather balloon and nothing more. Stage three is submergence. The story vanished from the records for years, pushed into the public subconscious. Submergence naturally opens the door to stage four, mythologizing. The open-ended nature of obscure past events are great fodder for creative minds willing to dig them up. By the time Chandray and Moore uncovered the majestic 12 leaks in 1984, mythologizing had run rampant. Hundreds of people were hoping to figure out what really happened at Roswell and concluded that the government was hiding their communications with aliens from the public. Stage 5. The Media Bandwagon Effect The Roswellian syndrome was complete. The truth no longer mattered. What mattered was that a large portion of the public now believed something fishy had gone down at Roswell. And if the government was willing to cover up one incident, who knows how many others there were. This wasn't just pop psychology. Famed psychologist Carl Jung wrote his own work on the phenomenon, entitled Flying Saucers, A Modern Myth of Things Seen in the Skies. Here is a quote from Jung himself, speaking on the idea of a UFO cover-up. What astonishes me most is that the American Air Force, despite all the information in its possession and its so-called fear of creating panic, seems to work systematically to do that very thing, since it has never yet published an authentic and certain account of the facts, only occasionally allowing information to be dragged out of it by journalists. One can only say that this is the most unpsychological and stupid policy one could invent. It is self-evident that the public ought to be told the truth, because ultimately it will nevertheless come to daylight." End quote. Now, in 1984, Chandray and Moore, men who had long called for government transparency, found themselves trapped between their own ideology and the paranoia that spawned from such beliefs. The eventual release of the Majestic 12 documents in 1987 caused a huge ripple through the UFO community, but it also put the U.S. government under the spotlight. Friend and fellow ufologist Stanton Friedman advised caution. The three of them slowly spread word of their findings through their tight-knit community. But it was only a matter of time until the inevitable occurred and the hidden information came to light. British author and ufologist Timothy Good also found a mystery delivery dropped on his doorstep containing the leaked documents. He made the choice for Chandra Moore and Friedman. In the summer of 1987, he published every page of the Majestic 12 leaks, the Eisenhower briefing, the Truman Forrestal letter, and the Cutler Twining memo in his massive tome, 
above top secret. The truth, as the ufologist adage goes, was literally out there. In the ensuing decades, suspicion only continued to build. The mystery of the Majestic 12 forced both the U.S. government and the UFO community to take a hard look at themselves in an effort to find the truth. In today's episode, we pursue that truth, too. It must be said that the UFO community is not just made up of stubborn believers. Within its ranks number many skeptics. After all, many of the researchers within the field are scientifically-minded journalists and scientists. If they want to believe, they need to be able to prove it. One man stands above the rest as the great debunker of UFO history. An electrical engineer by degree, his name was Philip Klass. He started his career as a UFO skeptic in 1966 by presenting a counter-argument to John Fuller's book, Incident at Exeter, regarding UFOs seen over the New Hampshire town. Utilizing his own expertise and knowledge that many of the UFO sightings took place near electrical wires and towers, Class posited that these events were actually caused by a previously unknown type of plasma or electrical discharge. While the scientific grounding of this initial argument eventually proved to be shaky, it catapulted Class into the spotlight. Although he became a heated rival of Stanton Friedman, Class always maintained that his true enemy was not the believer, but those who hoped to profit off of the believer. Most famously, he made the following offer to anyone in the public, but especially to ufologist authors who published sensationalist works. From 1966 onward, if signed into contract, Class agreed to pay $10,000 to the other party if any proof of extraterrestrial life visiting Earth in the 20th century came to light. Until that happened, the other party would have to pay Class $100 every year such an event did not occur, up to a maximum of 10 years. No one ever really took him up on this. So when Timothy Good released Above Top Secret and the Majestic 12 story entered the public consciousness, Class was immediately on the front lines trying to debunk it. Let's go ahead and break down the main arguments for and against the veracity of the MJ-12 leaks that Chandray and Moore received in 1984 and Good published in 1987. Good's book, Above Top Secret, provides one of the best pieces of evidence defending the reality of these documents. In it, he writes of a Canadian memo sent by a radio engineer within the Canadian Department of Transportation in November 1950. The engineer was making an argument that the Canadian government should form a UFO investigatory committee within the government, much like, quote, the concentrated effort being made by a small group headed by Dr. Vannevar Bush in America. How did a lowly radio engineer from the Canadian government learn of the existence of a supposedly top-secret American committee? That's a good question. The Canadian government has verified this memo as real, yet it is possible that the engineer was referring to another commission that Bush served on, as he was one of the most prolific scientific minds of his time. Another strong verification of the MJ-12 documents comes from statements made by retired Brigadier General Arthur E. Exxon, who served as commanding officer of Wright-Patterson Air Force Base between 1964 and 1966. As we learned last week, Wright-Patterson was verified as the home of the very real Project Blue Book UFO investigation. So it certainly has ties to UFO history. Exxon spoke about concerns he had regarding a high-ranking and secretive group that operated out of the airfield, dedicated to the study of UFOs. Was he just talking about Blue Book? Or did he catch wind of something more sinister? Exxon never mentioned the words Majestic 12, but he did give the group his own nickname, the Unholy 13. 
Such claims were dismissed by Class, since there were other possible explanations. Instead, Class and other debunkers focused their efforts on the documents themselves. Remember, the initial MJ-12 leaks were made up of three documents. There was an eight-page briefing to President Eisenhower, describing the origins and purpose of the organization. Then there was the Truman Forrestal letter, in which Truman essentially assigns full control of the group to the office of the presidency. These were the two documents found on the roll of film delivered to Chandaray and Moore in 1984. The third and final of the original MJ-12 documents was known as the Cutler Memo, written by presidential aide Robert Cutler to President Eisenhower, mentioning a meeting of the MJ-12 group. Chandaray and Moore claimed to have discovered this document in the National Archives in D.C. after receiving the previous leak. This discovery was the home run that, in their opinion, proved the existence of the Majestic Twelve. Over the years, Class and the debunkers have studied these documents intensely. Let's begin with the Eisenhower briefing and the Truman letter. First, the typewriter used on the Truman letter appears to be a Smith Corona model that wasn't invented until 1962, 15 years after the date listed on the letter itself. Harry Truman's signature is also suspect. Class himself determined that it's almost an exact match for a Truman signature on a verified letter to Vannevar Bush from 1947. On each signature, the H in Harry is slightly smudged. The Truman T in the Bush letter intersected with the final S in Sincerely Yours. The MJ-12 letter does not have this peculiarity, but... It does seem like the final S has been thinned down by whiteout. Finally, there is a discrepancy in size between the verified Bush letter signature and the MJ-12 signature. But this can be easily explained away by the process of a photocopier that could slightly increase the size of the letters it's copying. Class shrunk down the MJ-12 signature, and it matched precisely with the Bush letter signature. He believes this is definitive enough proof that the MJ-12 letter was forged. As for the Eisenhower briefing, first of all, the style of date writing on the briefing, supposedly composed by MJ-12 member Roscoe Hillencotter, does not match the military style he utilized in other written correspondence. There is also the usage of anachronistic words media instead of press or extraterrestrial instead of alien, that were not in common usage until the 1960s. Finally, the top-secret M-A-J-I-C stamp at the top of the briefing has a flaw. The I in magic is slightly raised. All classification stamps are even and precise. This flaw signifies that the magic stamp was created using individual letter stamps. But what about the Cutler memo? Chandray and Moore's definitive discovery from the National Archives. National Archive researchers themselves dove into this mystery. They claim that the top-secret restricted information marking on the page did not come into style until the Nixon administration. These same researchers determined that Robert Cutler wasn't even in the country on July 14, 1954, when he supposedly wrote this memo. However, the most damning clue is that the memo has a fold mark down the center of it. Few files in the National Archives are stored in a way that would potentially damage them. It's almost as if Moore or Chandray brought this forged memo inside the National Archives in their pocket and pretended to discover it within the official files. Class's righteousness was set off by these documents. If what he believed was true, whoever it was that was behind them was one of his ultimate enemies, those trying to take advantage of earnest UFO believers. Class wrote to the FBI in 1987, notifying them that seemingly classified documents 
had leaked into the public. The FBI knew they had to act, yet the case was opened and closed rather quickly. The Air Force Office of Special Investigations wrote to the FBI and told them that the documents were in no way real. Following this, the FBI released an official statement on the MJ-12 leaks, reprinting all 10 pages with bogus in bold letters stamped across each document. That should have been the end of it, right? Not only had the documents themselves shown many signs of forgery, but both the Air Force and the FBI conducted investigations of their own and determined they were fake. But the flames of suspicion did not die down. First of all, there's the fact that the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, also known as Air Force OSI, has never released any documentation of their investigative efforts that led to the determination they passed along to the FBI. Even under the Freedom of Information Act, all requests for further information are consistently denied. Despite the statement of Brigadier General Exxon or that aforementioned Canadian memo, the U.S. Air Force claims there is no further documentation on MJ-12. This is strange for a few reasons. The major one being that government agencies are notoriously meticulous and bureaucratic. Surely Air Force OSI didn't simply send a response to the FBI's requests without their own interior investigation, right? Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist Howard Blum wrote a book in 1990 called Out There, detailing the United States' investigations into UFOs. He interviewed researchers from an FBI working group a UFO team within the Defense Intelligence Agency that the FBI enlisted to look at the MJ-12 documents in 1988. Quote, When looking into the MJ-12 papers, some members of the working group said, and not in jest, perhaps we're just a front organization for some sort of MJ-12. Suppose, in effect, we conclude the MJ-12 papers are phony, then we've solved the entire mystery for the government, relieving them of the burden in dealing with it. And at the same time, we allow the real secret to remain held by a higher source." End quote. In other words, perhaps the government was hiding secrets from itself as much as it was hiding secrets from the public. And if there's one thing that certainly did follow the construction of the American intelligence apparatus following World War II, it's the growing importance of this word, disinformation. We'll return to our story in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Now the story continues. In early 1955, Victor Marchetti joined the CIA, hoping to make a difference in the fight against the Soviet Union. By 1969, he was completely disillusioned. In 1973, Marchetti published The CIA and the Cult of Intelligence, an expose of sorts on the practices and operating procedures of the agency with many sections censored by the government under the orders of then-President Nixon. Marchetti's story, in short, is one of disinformation, that is, when the government intentionally spreads false information as propaganda, 
and the potentially lethal web the American intelligence community has woven throughout history. The following is quoted from Archetti's essay in the fall 1989 issue of the Journal of Historical Review. Quote, The CIA is a master at distorting history, even creating its own version of history to suit its institutional and operational purposes. When the public does not know what the government or the CIA is doing, it cannot voice its approval or disapproval of their actions. In fact, they can even lie to you about what they're doing or have done, and you will not know it. The CIA is a secret tool of the president, every president. And every president since Truman has lied to the American people in order to protect the agency. When lies have failed, it has been the duty of the CIA to take the blame for the president, thus protecting him. This is known in the business as plausible denial, end quote. There are many examples from the second half of the 20th century that point toward the intelligence community's penchant for disinformation. Perhaps the best-known example is the lies told surrounding the feasibility of victory in the Vietnam War during the late 1960s and 1970s. Without the release of the Pentagon Papers by the Washington Post exposing the government's lies regarding America's chances at victory, the war would have continued on and claimed even more lives. Or how about the instance of Kennedy unsuccessfully utilizing CIA operatives to assassinate Fidel Castro? Then there are the even shadier stranger instances. The cover-ups and lies connected to Project MKUltra, for example. By now, everyone looks back on this project as another weird relic from the 1960s American mythos. But make no mistake, it was real. In 1975, President Ford had the government examine reported illegal activities of the CIA. This was commonly known as the Rockefeller Commission, since it was led by Vice President Nelson Rockefeller. During the congressional hearings, testimonies confirmed Project MKUltra as fact. After World War II ended, the CIA and U.S. Army's Chemical Corps cooperated in putting together a project, dubbed MKUltra, designed to determine if mind control was possible. To induce such a state, unwitting citizens were subjected to abuse, hypnosis, isolation, and other forms of psychological torture, including the infamous doses of the mind-altering substance LSD. Of course, this was all kept top secret until 1975. It's likely that MKUltra had, at the very least, peripheral ties to Operation Whitecoat, a biological weapons defense institute run out of Fort Detrick in Maryland from the 1950s to the 1970s. Here is where a man named Frank Olson enters the story. Olson was a biochemist at Fort Detrick involved in Operation White Coat. At first, he knew nothing about MKUltra. At work, he specialized in developing bacterial strains that could be released through aerosol spray. This was potentially a very deadly biological weapon. At home, he was a family man with a wife and children. He was a dedicated and serious man. Yet, in 1953, the Olson family was informed that Frank Olson had leapt from the 13th floor of a hotel in New York City. Two weeks before his death, Olson attended a retreat in the woods alongside other Fort Detrick associates. His wife Alice said that when he came home from the retreat, something had changed inside of him. She reported that he claimed something bad had happened there and that he had made a terrible mistake. Days later, he was shipped away by Fort Detrick to receive psychiatric help. Instead, he seemingly killed himself. It was only due to the tireless work and persistence of the Olson family that more of the truth came to light. In the late 1970s, following the disastrous conclusion of the Vietnam War, the CIA officially apologized to the Olson family and told them their version of the truth. 
Frank Olson had been unknowingly and illegally dosed with LSD as an experiment during the retreat, just weeks before his death. The new explanation was that Olson's surprise experience with the drug drove him to madness and then to suicide. Frank Olson's death as a result of LSD experiments is confirmed in the Rockefeller Commission's official report. Yet Frank's son, Eric, could not accept this. The paper trail on MKUltra was mostly destroyed by project leader Sidney Gottlieb in 1983. But in 1994, Eric Olson and a forensic scientist exhumed Frank Olson's body. They found suspicious markings not previously reported, as if Olson had been involved in a fight. There was a telling blunt trauma to his forehead that wouldn't have been there if he had leapt headfirst through the hotel window, as the official story went. But it could have been caused by someone knocking Olson out before he was tossed from the window. Since then, Eric Olson's theory has remained firm. The CIA assassinated his father. In his own words, quote, you can't have an MK Ultra unless you're willing to terminate people who threatened to expose it, end quote. Eric believes Frank Olson began to have moral doubts about his work in Operation White Coat. He became an unwitting MKUltra experiment because his superiors wanted to root these doubts out and potentially reveal a desire to betray their secret operations. When the experiment backfired, and seemed to push Olson closer to not only defecting from his confidential work at White Coat, but also exposing the CIA's LSD experimentation, they decided to have him killed. This is the version of the story that infamous investigative journalist Seymour Hirsch subscribes to. He believes the CIA has assassination protocols in place and claims to have a source that verifies this. However, due to journalistic protocol, Hirsch refuses to say more. We've moved far afield from the Majestic 12 investigation to make one thing clear. Disinformation is real. And disinformation has been knowingly propagated by the American intelligence community at various points since its creation after World War II. So what if the UFO phenomenon was another work of CIA disinformation? What if Majestic 12 is a cover story to throw the public off the trail of something else? This is the most important story we want to investigate today. The tragedy of a man named Paul Benowitz and how the men who manipulated him may have created the UFO phenomenon in the first place. In 1979, Paul Benowitz ran a small scientific instrument workshop on the edge of Kirtland Air Force Base. During nights of that same year, Benowitz began seeing strange lights flying overhead at night. Benowitz began tuning his radio up, hoping to pick up rogue extraterrestrial frequencies. By 1980, Benowitz was fully paranoid. He thought he had definitive proof aliens were watching Kirtland and reached out to the base leadership. Surprisingly, he was granted an audience. Benowitz was greeted by Special Agent Richard Doty of Air Force OSI. Instead of shutting down his line of inquiry, Doty encouraged it. He told Benowitz to continue his monitoring of the frequencies. He told him he was onto something big. In truth, Benowitz wasn't picking up rogue alien signals, but he was picking up military broadcasts, and the Air Force wasn't too pleased about this. With Doty as their point of contact, they decided to figure out how to plug these intelligence holes by using Benowitz as a lab rat. As long as Benowitz was reporting extraterrestrial sightings to Doty, the Air Force knew they had more work to do. However, Benowitz began to spread word of his alien investigation through the UFO community. Remember, this was right at the peak of the UFO mythologizing that followed the reemergence of the Roswell incident in popular culture. 
Perhaps Dodie saw a chance to expand the scope of this disinformation campaign. Because in November 1980, Dodie reached out to another obsessive ufologist, William Moore. Dodie and Moore struck up a partnership. If Moore spread UFO disinformation on Dodie's behalf, Dodie would pass on real UFO intel to Moore. This seems to be an odd and unbelievable deal, but Moore accepted because in 1981, Moore passed a series of documents relating to so-called Project Aquarius to Paul Benowitz. Moore would later claim that he prefaced this exchange by telling Benowitz he was unsure about the origins of these documents or their basis in reality. However, Benowitz was a man who already assumed aliens were covertly taking over the U.S. government. So it didn't take much for him to believe in the imaginary Project Aquarius. From this sprung the legend of Dolce Base, a hidden underground lab in New Mexico devoted to the cooperation of humans and extraterrestrials in constructing hybrid weaponry and technology. All of this, it seems, sprung from the imaginations of either Moore, Doty, or a combination of the two. The most important aspect of the Aquarius documents, though, is that within their pages arises a very familiar term, MJ-12. That's right. The first time MJ-12 cropped up was in a false report concocted by either Moore or Doty. This was three years before Chandere received the MJ-12 leaks. Out of all of the evidence against the legitimacy of those leaks so far, this seems to be the most damning. Moore and Doty's collaboration did not stop there, though. In October 1988, Moore produced a live broadcast called UFO Cover-Up Live. On this broadcast, Two men sat behind curtains and spoke with disguised voices while Moore moderated. Moore claimed these two men were members of what he called the aviary. He hinted that this was the modern-day incarnation of MJ-12. The only names given for these secret operatives? Falcon and Condor. On this program, Falcon and Condor spoke about MJ-12's connection to the U.S. Navy and mentioned that a live alien specimen was currently being held in the secret Area 51 base in Nevada. Doty, who was most likely playing the role of Condor, had stepped up his disinformation campaign. He wasn't just going after Benowitz, but the entire community of UFO believers— he was the distillation of what debunker Philip Klass truly hated, the master manipulator. But this broadcast marked the end of Doty and Moore's work together. Two months earlier, Paul Benowitz had a dangerous, paranoid episode. His family had him committed to a hospital for a month before he came out of it. For the rest of his life, he would no longer be allowed to involve himself in the UFO community. It was too risky for his mental health. Perhaps William Moore heard about this. It's likely he did, because at a UFO conference in 1989, he decided to finally come clean. After nine years of working with Doty, Moore admitted that he had become part of a disinformation machine. Of course, Moore claimed he too had been manipulated by Doty into believing falsehoods. He also claimed that at least four other prominent ufologists were in the pocket of special intelligence agents like Doty. The ultimate paranoid theorists had been right to be so suspicious of the government, but for the wrong reasons. By the time they knew the truth, it was already too late. Anything and everything in the UFO community's mythos, from alien sightings to possible cover-ups, were now subject to endless looping debates. How could they possibly know what was real and what was a government-sponsored lie? If confusion had been the goal, Doty had succeeded beyond his wildest imaginings. He had turned all of us into Paul Benowitz, mystified by unknown signals from a chaotic universe. We'll return to our story in just a moment. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And now let's continue the story. Years later, during an interview on Coast to Coast with George Norrie, Richard Doty said the following, quote, I had a job in the Air Force. I did my job. I followed orders. Everything we did was following orders, end quote. At the end of the road, these are the words left hanging in the air. Is that all the mystery of the Majestic 12 amounts to? A liar following orders from different, unknown liars above him? And if so, what was the Majestic 12 lie intended to cover up? Some ufologists refuse to let go of Majestic 12. Stanton Friedman, after all these years, stands firm in his position that such a group did and might continue to exist. When asked by Open Minds TV about the believability of a younger agent like Doty releasing false intel with real details, like the existence of top-secret MJ-12, Friedman had this to say. Quote, I don't have an answer. You never know who is arranging disinformation to get people off on wrong trails. He may have been doing what he was told to do, to put out red herrings. If you clutter the world with all kinds of stuff, you hope you diffuse the genuine stuff. Oh well, that's phony, so that must be phony too. The fact that a whole bunch is phony doesn't mean none are genuine. This is the kind of false reasoning you see throughout ufology. Absence of evidence is evidence for absence. If I can't provide them something they would like, it means for them that it doesn't exist. End quote. Friedman's words here do seem to reflect former CIA operative Victor Marchetti's views on the goals and functions of government disinformation. To distort history in order to deflect criticism and protest. Perhaps it even comes back to what investigative journalist Howard Blum recorded in his book, Out There. There are factions within the government withholding information from one another. Was the Majestic 12 history or just story? Either way, it's a convoluted and dense narrative, potentially because it was designed to be mysterious. But our goal here is to solve the mystery, or at least find the best possible hypothesis. So let's break this down. Who are the suspects? Regardless even of their veracity, who left the MJ-12 documents at Chandere's Burbank residence in the first place? If we take on the perspective of a debunker like Philip Klass, the answer seems more obvious. It was a frustrated ufologist seeking fame, fortune, or both. In fact, there's a final Klass story that might provide a culprit. As Klass tried to pick apart the Cutler memo, he determined it was composed in an unusual typeface. He hypothesized that whoever wrote this probably had original documents from the time period to use as a style guide of sorts. He offered a cash prize to whoever could send him such period documents. And who answered this call? Confusingly, Stanton Friedman himself sent Class a cache of old documents that matched the Cutler memo's typeface. Class paid Friedman $1,000. Friedman might have thought he was merely offering further proof that the Cutler memo was historically real, but his reputation was stained for good. So there's option number one. Friedman did it, hoping to catch a big media wave on the Roswellian Syndrome Express. Yet the evidence doesn't point to such a simple solution. Instead, the path leads to the partnership of Richard Doty and William Moore, begun in 1980. Interestingly, to this day, Moore has never confirmed or denied the idea that Doty orchestrated the 1984 MJ-12 document drop at Jamie Chandere's house. One way to take this 
is that Moore believed Doty really did pass on real information about UFOs in exchange for Moore's loyalty. Much more believable is that Moore keeps hopes of Majestic 12 alive, so he can cling to whatever respect the UFO community has left to give to a self-admitted hoaxer. In our eyes, the likeliest story is that Richard Doty is the primary architect of the MJ-12 documents, perhaps with a story credit awarded to William Moore for the juicy extraterrestrial details. Just as Doty was the one who created the Aquarius document with the first historical mention of Majestic 12, he was just as likely the author of the MJ-12 leaks that found their way to Jamie Chandere's house. Recall here that Timothy Good received the leaks from an anonymous source around 1987, three years after Chandere did. Perhaps Doty was frustrated with waiting for Moore and Chandere to publish the false intelligence. It's known that in 1983, the year before Chandere mysteriously received the documents, Doty himself approached ufologist and journalist Linda Moulton Howe with similar documents relating to the Majestic 12. She pressed him for promised video footage relating to an alien autopsy so she could release a full documentary, but she never received such footage. Maybe Good was just the ufologist to finally take Doty's bait all the way to the press. And what of the aviary? The new Majestic 12 that Moore claimed Doty worked for. It does seem likely that Doty generated all of this disinformation for a reason. It's unlikely any intelligence agency would allow Doty to create such stories with abandon. So it stands to reason that Doty was indeed backed by some higher authority. That would be our definitive answer for the who of this mystery. Richard Doty, helped by William Moore, and backed by higher agents in the intelligence agencies of the U.S. government, crafted the narrative of the Majestic 12. But what about the why? What is the purpose of these lies? Is there a real aviary, magic, or Majestic 12 that hopes to smokescreen the real alien investigations by spreading insane rumors? We can't fully discredit this theory. As Stanton Friedman said, just because there's not hard evidence doesn't mean it's not happening. But it's likely that the truth behind the lies is less fantastic and more base, dry, human, and disappointing. Take the case of Frank Olson and Project MKUltra. The LSD story was the juicy lead that the media and public latched onto. But the truth was simply that the CIA feared Olson was compromised after he understood what they had done to him. It was a lot easier for him to just be dead. Or, to stay closer to our subject, let's look one last time at the incident that started all of this in the first place, Roswell. Something certainly happened outside of Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. It wasn't an alien crash site. But it wasn't just an innocent weather balloon, either. In the later 1990s, the government released declassified intel that revealed the floating device was an experimental piece of technology involved in the widespread Air Force Project Mogul. Its purpose was to soar at a high altitude and detect faraway reverberations of foreign nuclear tests. There's too much documentation on Mogul for it to be another case of disinformation. The initial lie was the product of a paranoid government, fearful of losing their atomic superiority. Project Mogul wasn't sinister, but it wasn't exactly something the government wanted spread in the news. So they covered it up. Many sensed a lie, but they sensed the wrong lie. This wrong lie was allowed to flourish and so the UFO phenomenon was born. It's unlikely the government expected such a strange mythology to take root, but it's clear they didn't exactly want to shut it down. Supposed alien cover-ups could provide useful cover for later military or scientific experiments. And it kept many of the more imaginative in the public off the scent of their actual secretive Cold War operations. 
Aldous Huxley, master crafter of the prescient dystopia of Brave New World, wrote the following about the evolution of propaganda in Western societies. Quote, In regard to propaganda, the early advocates of universal literacy and a free press envisaged only two possibilities. The propaganda might be true or it might be false. They did not foresee what in fact has happened, above all in our Western capitalist democracies, the development of a vast mass communications industry concerned in the main neither with the true nor the false, but with the unreal, the more or less totally irrelevant. In a word, they failed to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. End quote. Going along with this line of thinking, former British spy and journalist Malcolm Muggridge composed this dirge to intelligence operations in the 20th century. Quote, In the eyes of posterity, it will inevitably seem that, in safeguarding our freedom, we destroyed it. The vast clandestine apparatus we built up to prove our enemy's resources and intentions only served in the end to confuse our own purposes. That practice of deceiving others for the good of the state led infallibly to our deceiving ourselves. And that vast army of clandestine personnel built up to execute these purposes were soon caught up in the web of their own sick fantasies with disastrous consequences for them and us." End quote. A grim foretelling that seems sadly more accurate by the day. The secrets may be less cosmic than we hoped, but there are a lot of them out there eternally vying for our attention and belief. As for the Majestic 12, the only certainty is that deception lies at the heart of this mystery. The government kept secrets from the public, but we'll never know precisely what. Don't forget to subscribe to Unexplained Mysteries on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Thursday. Thanks for listening. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Joel Stein and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unexplained Mysteries is written by Jack Bentel and stars Claire Delamar and Richard Rossner. 